I'm turning in my Bible where we last left off when we were together last, and that is in the end of chapter 22 of Matthew. If you want to turn there with me, I'll begin reading at verse 41 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Now hear it together with open hearts and ears. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that your Spirit, who breathed into David this passage before, as he said in the Spirit, Yahweh has said to my Lord, As we consider in the Spirit now this text that Jesus Himself quotes, and now afresh with us this day, open our eyes that we may see, give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. And may we go away from here not being merely hearers, but doers of the Word this day as we trust in the Word. And we give our lives in denial of ourself, Picking up our cross to follow Jesus wherever he wants us to go. And we pray, Lord, that you would guide us this day in the application of this truth. May our hearts yield to everything you would have for us here. And pray the Spirit would do that which we cannot. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Since the beginning of the fall, we have a clash of worldviews. We have a great cosmic battle that began back in the garden when man took of the forbidden fruit and ate it at the tempting of the serpent. And now we have a great cosmic battle that must take place here upon the earth for the sake of regaining man back to the favor of God and and on God's side. To defeat the principality, the great chief God of this age and the prince of the air and of this world that has incarcerated the world under his power up until the time that the great strong man, the Lord Jesus himself, came in to bind uh, the Lord or the Satan and to plunder his goods upon the earth. And what we have is a great cosmic battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that has been going on throughout all of human history since the fall. And now it's coming to the great climax of that battle where now the fire of the war gets hot. 
And when the serpent tempted man away from God, he did so by enticing man with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And like the serpent of old, pride and envy are the destructive principles that continue to work in the hearts of men. It is that which has worked in the fallen angels and principalities and the powers of this age, and they do entice fallen men into their snare. And that is what we see coming to a great climax in the passage before us in the context of which we are now in. In the broad narrative of Scripture, from the beginning to the end, we are now at the climax of the story where Jesus and Satan will clash swords and the battle will be violent. The thing that we hate in this world is war and violence and graphic violence. We recoil. But we have to remember in order for your souls to be one back to God and be eternally secure and at peace with Him, it was a bloody battle that your Savior endured for you. With all of His life and with His life. And that's why we have this great cosmic battle that has been showing forth throughout all of those graphic wars in the Old Testament, but now it's coming to the very climax in this time of which is leading up to the cross. Jesus in human flesh, which is critically important for us to understand, will war against the chief spiritual principality of this world. And the battle must be won both spiritually and physically in order for man to be restored to complete humanity. Where the image of God is renewed and restored and man has been returned to his rightful and way of his design that God has created him out of the earth with the Spirit of God, where heaven and earth came together in man himself, being of the image of God, out into this world. And now, in the perfect image of God, in Christ Jesus himself, comes to restore man to his completeness. As Jesus being the head, the new head, the last Adam... And who forever now will remain in human flesh, yet fully God. In order for us not only to be restored in complete humanity, but to God Himself and our fellowship with Him. And the closer we now see 
in the Scriptures leading us to the cross of Jesus Christ where He dies a bloody and heinous and, and, and graphic death, the most shameful death, because you put Him there and I did. Because of His love and the love of God the Father and settling the justice appeasing His own wrath against us, showing and demonstrating the greatest demonstration of love. And as we get closer, the battle gets hotter. And that's what we have in these chapters. That began with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, proclaiming that He is... Israel's Messiah, their long hoped for promised king. And when he entered Jerusalem that day, he was not entering in a manner that was so peaceful, but he was going right to the battlefront to do battle. As soon as he arrives, he drew his sword. And he began his offensive front. And from then on, swords were clashing between dark and light, and between the seed of the serpent and him being the seed of the woman that God had promised. And he enters into the temple as soon as he comes into Jerusalem, and he violently cast out the money changers. In his great zeal for God's house. And in response he is confronted by the religious leaders. His chief desire at this point in their life was to destroy him. And so they have to form a crafty way in order to do that. Keeping the people on their side and allowing Rome to go along with it. And immediately after the temple scene in which Jesus cast out the money changers, the religious leaders descend upon Him, and they question, by what authority? What is the source of your authority by which you do these things? You might remember it's coming into the high point of their annual year at the Feast of the Passover. What they did not recognize was He was the Passover Lamb. And so they questioned him by what is the source of his authority, which led Jesus to answering them in three successive parables that all had to do with their rejection of him. Two of those parables, two of those three, the last two, the person that was rejected in those parables was either the son of a very important personage or the king himself at the wedding preparation of the king's son. Following those parables, which seemingly went over their head, though they did know that those parables were spoken against them, the leaders gathered together. They gathered together. In three successive 
ways. First of all, the Pharisees gathered together with the Herodians of all people. Second of all, the Sadducees. And then the Pharisees come again. And as they gathered together, as verse 34 would say, and they gathered together, it was with malicious tent, to trap him in his own words in order that they might seemingly have some reason in the eyes of both the government as well as the people to destroy him. The questions, each of them, were designed to trap him in his own words so that they could then accuse him in some form and find fault to execute him. Each time Jesus answered the question in such a way that it silenced the leaders, and he did answer the questions, but they had no response. So they had to retreat, regroup, regather and cause another affront. So three times, three questions. Now in verse 41, we see that these Pharisees, it says, were gathered together. Again, they are assembling. They're retreating and gathering together. What can we do? And Jesus now takes advantage of the gathering together as he now goes on the offensive. However, Jesus' offense is not with malicious intent, nor is it... Uh, mal-intended, but he took advantage of their gathering to levy a question upon them, the question of all questions, that if they could answer it correctly, would lead them to eternal life. It would lead them to the victory and the battle that they sought to win. And that question all boils down to, who is this Jesus? And to guide them to that answer, he invites the leaders to consider their understanding of the Messiah. There are two implications in the passage before us. First of all, he's going to imply that their traditional understanding of the Messiah is inadequate. It's not complete. I believe that's true with many people today, and particularly still the Jews. Second implication in the passage before us is that both the leaders and the people understood that Jesus was referencing himself as the son of David in this present context. That could not be mistaken. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, all of the people went and gathered up palm branches and they strewed them out before him as he rode in and they were proclaiming, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. Then when he went into the temple, he drove out the money changers in his zeal. And then he heals in the temple. And then the children of the parents that were crying out come and they say, Hosanna, son of David. In fact, the Pharisees heard it and they asked Jesus, do you not hear what they are saying? Rebuke these, that they do not call you this. And Jesus not only did not rebuke them, 
He continued to say, if these keep silent, even the stones will cry out and say the same. He received the worship. He received the praise. This now is not the Jesus that was say, now keep it quiet and don't go and tell anybody. No, the time is at hand. It is time for the world to know Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King. He has the authority from on heaven. And He is the Son of David. He is the Son of God. He is all of the Jews' Messiah. He is what they expected and so much more. So what is the biblical understanding of the Messiah? That's part of the question. Who is Jesus? And that's the other part of the question. Both of those questions will be summed up with a single question that if the Pharisees could answer correctly, then they would have put it all together correctly. He frames the question, first of all, in verse 42, by drawing out of them their understanding of Messiah. By the way, the word Christ in our New Testament text is simply the the Greek word for Messiah. When you see the word Christ, it is not his name, it is his title. It is an appellative, it is his office as the mediator between God and man. So in his office as Messiah, now in the New Testament Greek it would be Christ, we are talking about the same thing. He says in verse 42, what do you think about Messiah? Whose son is he? And they answered David's. This would have been so well known among the Jews in that time, it would have been an automatic answer. They didn't have to think about it. They didn't have to liberate about it. He was drawing off of them a truth that they knew. It was not that their answer was wrong. It was inadequate of which he will go on to press. Messiah was certainly from the lineage of David. In fact, Matthew has made so much of the to-do about that very thing. If we trace out in Matthew, we see this relationship of the descendant of, of David from the Judaic line. We see also much to do about the title Son of God in Matthew's Gospel as it relates to Jesus. But see, he was... While he was a descendant of David, while it could be traced back all the way to David, and Matthew does this through the lineage of his father Joseph, who by flesh was not of the descendant of David, or Jesus wasn't through Joseph, that is, while Joseph was, we know that Joseph was not his actual fleshy father, earthly father in a sense. But he adopted him into the family. But the scripture also speaks highly about the very flesh of David had to be traced all the way to the Messiah. And that's why Luke gives us the genealogy from Mary's perspective, both Mary and Joseph being of the lineage of David. So Jesus was both of flesh of David as well as in David's house through this covenantal right through Joseph. 
That could have easily been traced out. Even for the, the, the Pharisees at the time, they kept meticulous records and they kept them in the temple. It's not uh, an accident that in A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed, all of those genealogies were destroyed. And that's why no longer are the genealogies important to us except to trace this down to Jesus. After that, the genealogies. That's why even after the fact, people went on to wrangle about the endless genealogies when after Christ has come and it is proven and shown that the genealogies are no longer needed. I know some people today, even Christians, try to trace their roots back to, I'm of the house of Levi. That's the endless genealogies of which the Apostle Paul spoke against that can be divisive in the church. Don't go there. I know some proud Scottish Presbyterians will will trace their genealogies back to certain tartans of the tribes of Scotland. That's that's dangerously close to being uh, divisive if we put our trust and a little bit of pride in that fact. Genealogies have their place, but in the redemptive plan of God. Beyond that, there is no barbarian, Scythian, Jew, or Gentile. We are all in Christ equally. So as Jesus asked them this question, whose son is Messiah? Immediately they said, David's. And then Jesus then is going to ask a follow-up question. And he's going to do so by quoting Psalm 110 in verse 43 and verse 44. He says, then how does David in the spirit, if Messiah is David's son, how then does David, notice here, in the spirit, as David was inspired by the spirit of God, this was not merely his words, but this is God's word, How does David in spirit call him Lord? And then he's going to quote from Psalm 110. And he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110, as I noted, is the most quoted Old Testament passage by all or, or by the New Testament writers. Over two dozen times does the New Testament writer writers quote from Psalm 110. If you have your Bibles and want to turn briefly back to Psalm 110, it gives us some context of what's going on in this tremendous psalm that has been used more often than any other by New Testament writers to establish the very importance of who is the Messiah. Because if we can have a biblical understanding of God's promised Messiah and then know who He is, we have so much of the Scriptures figured out. In Psalm 110, we began with the title, of which I believe were also inspired. Now you may have an additional phrase in your Bible, which is not inspired, in mine it says the announcement of Messiah's reign. That, that's not the title. The title is A Psalm of David. And I believe that's inspired as well. 
As we began the psalm, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So common has this become with us that we can recite it almost without looking down, even if we haven't tried to memorize it. But there are three personages here that we must note. The first personage given in the title of the psalm is David himself. David, who is the author of this psalm, is also referred to in the pronoun in verse 1, my. So we have one person, that is David. A second personage we have here is denoted for us in the capital letters L-O-R-D, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's the way that many of the English translations has delineated out the very proper name of God, which is sometimes translated Yahweh, sometimes Jehovah. Yahweh said to my, David's, Lord. And there's the third personage there given to us by this Hebrew word Adonai. And the word Adonai is a term that means master or Lord or superior. So what we have here is David saying, I heard in the Spirit Yahweh speaking to my superior. Now what is interesting about that is David was the king of Israel at the pinnacle of Israel's military might. And as he had defeated all of the nations, he became not only the greatest king of Israel, he was the greatest king in his contemporary time of all of the known world. For David then to acknowledge someone superior to him as his own king was profound. Who is David's king? We have a tremendous psalm here because what we have is David listening in on an eternal conversation between Yahweh and David's king. That's tremendous. I think about John 17, when the disciples are listening in on a prayer that the Son of God, Jesus, is praying in their presence out loud so they could hear to God the Father. It was a private prayer between God the Son and God the Father in the presence of His disciples where they could hear and Jesus is praying for them. And here we have David sitting upon his throne hearing this eternal conversation between Yahweh, the only true God, the creator of heaven and earth, speaking to David's king. Now we see from verse 2 and following that this Adonai of David's was indeed a king. Yahweh shall send the rod, and that word is scepter, of your strength out of Zion. And we have a scepter, and, and 
Who carries a scepter? Who has a scepter? A king. What does a king do? He rules. And that's what the next verse says, or next part of the verse. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He goes on in verse 4. The Lord has sworn, Yahweh has sworn, and will not change his mind or relent. Speaking about David's king now, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So not only is David's king a king, but he is also a priest. And that was a problem for the Jews right up until Jesus Christ. In fact, so problematic was it, and the reason it was problematic is because there was no king that could serve as an office of a priest, and no priest could ever serve in the office of a king. In fact, the priest had to literally, physically remove Uzziah from the temple when he overstepped his jurisdiction. A priest cannot be a king, a king cannot be a priest. That was reserved for only one and one only, and that's Jesus, the true Messiah. But the Jews did not have this comprehension, and and so they would even go on to suggest as some of them would, that as they wrestled through this particular passage, there must be two messianic personages, one that would be a priest and one that would be a king. But here the psalm clearly identifies that both of the offices would be held by a single person. They just had it all backwards. Verse 5 shows us that this one sits at Yahweh's right hand, and that's why there's lots of references to this psalm about at God's right hand, as this one who rules over the earth, and verse 6 even judges all the nations. This is David's king, the one who rules over all the earth, who judges the nation, who is also a priest as well as a king, who is God's appointed Messiah. At the time that Jesus was pressing this psalm upon the Pharisees in this question, they had not questioned the Davidic authorship of Psalm 110. That was not a question at this time. They had not questioned the fact that Messiah would be the son of David. That was not a question at this time. In addition, at this time, Psalm 110 is referencing the Messiah, and they had not questioned that, that this Psalm 110 is messianic, and the Yahweh is promising to his Messiah. In fact, even up beyond the time of Christ, uh, Jews have still looked at Psalm 110 as messianic. Um, Not completely, but but pretty, pretty strongly, even up to the 12th century. Because of the very question that Jesus put before them on that day, the Jews have now had to figure out an answer to it. You might remember an illustration that I've given you before of a situation where I was conversing with an Orthodox Jew. It was the one that uh, built uh, the Sald's Pool. And he was a staunch Orthodox Hasidic Jew that, uh, that 
was the owner of the pool company, and he and I had a lot of conversations. And it was about this time of the year that I was questioning him on Passover one day, and, and he got a little steamed under the collar, and, and he showed up uh, one day in my office with his Hebrew Bible in his hand, and we sat there for two hours conversing. And I pulled my Hebrew Bible off my shelf, and I said, let's just turn to Psalm 110. And I said, it says, Yahweh says to my Lord. Now it says here that the, the authorship is David. Do you agree? Yes. Yahweh says to David's Adonai. And I just went right down the same argument that Jesus used. And I said, so who is David's superior? Who is David's king here? And he thought about it for about 10 minutes. He had no answer. He was silenced until he found his footnotes in his Hebrew Bible that was not in mine. And the only footnotes that he had that were not in mine was the oral tradition that came about after Christ to help them through all of these conundrums. And the oral tradition had the authority to interpret the written Word of God in the Torah to make it relevant for the time in which the Jew lives. And so that oral tradition then removed the authorship of David, although he still has the title, a psalm of David, in his Hebrew, it then, he then annulled that it really was not a psalm of David after all. See, that's key. But at the time when Jesus was arguing, that was not questioned. David was the author. This psalm is messianic. The son of David is the Messiah. And here is Jesus leading them down this path. And if you put it all together, Jesus was leading them to the very important question, if Messiah is the son of David, how then can David call him his Lord? You could almost feel the tension and hear the pin drop once again like it was in my office for ten minutes. In the culture of that time, particularly so, it would, have been, it, would, it would not have been customary for a parent to honor his son in this way, no matter what position or title the son had. You might remember that Joseph, <coughs> I'm sorry, Jacob rebuked Joseph when he was telling him of the dream. And, and, and his father said, with, with a, a bit of, of, of frustration and, and displeasure, shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come and bow down before you to the earth? See, that was, that was not customary. Even after Solomon had become the king, his mother Bathsheba comes into his presence, into the throne room, and Solomon gets down off of his throne and bows before his mother, and he is the king. See, it doesn't matter if your children outstrip your accomplishments. If you're the parent, they show you honor. Amen, children? Yes. It should be so even in our culture today. So the question that Jesus put forth even had a charge to it uh, culturally 
in their perspective. So how can it be that David himself called the son of God his king? Called the son of David his king. How, how, how is that? And Psalm 110 clearly informs that David's son is also David's king. How can it be? And this is the question that silenced them. If we go back to Matthew chapter 22, we see exactly what the result of that was in verse 46. This is the question that silenced all other questions. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. See, by this time, the Pharisees had clearly understood the implications as it related to Jesus. Jesus claimed that he was Messiah. Jesus received the title and the praise directed to him in the name of the Son of David. A title the Pharisees clearly understood as Messianic. The one that they tried to get Jesus to quieten the children in the temple. They, the entire picture was becoming very clear now. And Jesus was the direct descendant of David. Something that not only Matthew could trace out and did, but something they could have easily done. And because of the meticulous genealogical records kept, there was no question there. There was no question in the people's mind who Jesus was openly claiming to be as he entered into Jerusalem. Messiah was prophesied to Israel as their great anticipated king. Malachi had prophesied that Messiah would come suddenly into his temple. That had just happened. The climax of the story is building. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, which these things, the religious leaders are rejecting. And the parables that Jesus just gave previous to this. It was clear what the chief priests and the religious leaders understood what Jesus was claiming about himself. In fact, in Matthew 26, 63, when we'll see later, he, he comes to the trial. The high priest answered and said, I put you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Answer to the question, he again references, guess, Psalm 110. And he answered and says, it is as you say. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power of and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's all it took for them to call blasphemy and charge him and to kill him. Now with all the evidence before them, with tremendous knowledge of the Old Testament prophecies, and even the claims that they knew that Jesus made, why did they then not acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah? The evidence was clear. The prophecies were fulfilled. It was all right here. Why could they not do that? It's the same question that each one of us has to grapple with today. 
Why do people today not do that? Well, if they acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, they would have to acknowledge him as their Lord. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior if you have not owned him as your Lord. Second, they were envious. They were envious of Jesus. They would have rather had his position, his acclaim, his status, the people's um, favor. Envy is a feeling that one has when they want something that somebody else has, whether it be status or an experience or uh, of things, it's, it's, it's a pride. It's pride. It evidences it in this strong, envious feeling. And it's telling that their envy and their pride was so evident that Pilate himself knew that these religious leaders delivered up Jesus to him because of their envy of him. He says so in Matthew 27, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Messiah? For he knew that they handed him over to him because of envy. See, their pride was blinding their hearts. And they would not bow their knee to the Lord. See, that is the battle from the beginning. That's the battle from the very beginning when Satan himself had the same issue, where he then tempted Adam and Eve over into the same issue. And it's the battle that's going on even now in our own hearts. Pride is the biggest antithesis against the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives, and we still battle it. When we pray the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, we are praying personally that the Lord God would bring us more under His lordship. And that's only going to happen when we're humble. We're asking Him, Lord, humble me. That's what you're praying. Our pride is the main principle at that's working in our lives that wars against the notion that Jesus is Lord. It's the thing that kept the Pharisees away, the thing that recoiled the Sadducees, it's the thing that the Herodians could not come to, it's the thing that the whole Jews as a nation has pushed Jesus as Messiah. And it's the same thing out here among us in our community when people deny Jesus is truly Lord of their lives. They may honor Him with their mouths, but their hearts are far from Him. But it's the same thing that goes on in the battle of your soul. It goes on out in the world. It goes on in science. The scientists will, will never come to a creationist perspective until they bow their knee and say, Jesus is Lord. But in your own heart, 
The scripture says your flesh wars against your spirit and your spirit against the flesh. And even as a Christian, it's this pride, this envy, this internal spirit of man which rises up and it does not want to call Jesus Lord, but the spirit thankfully, which is greater in he, he that is in us, acknowledges, no, Jesus is Lord. Settle it down. Put to death that old man of the flesh. Because pride and envy are, are the destructive principles in your life and in my life, in the hearts of men. And the, the solution to it is you have to yield that over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I believe as, as Kelly prayed earlier this morning, all of our problems go back to us not trusting in the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives like we should. See, the solution to the problem is humility and love. Service and justice, grace and mercy. These are the characteristics of the kingdom that the Spirit of God has regenerated us to be, and that's why there is a new spirit in us. But the old flesh wars against us. And when the swords clash in your own soul between spirit and flesh and flesh and spirit, you've got to yield to the Lord Jesus Christ and call Him the Son of God, the Son of David. He is my Messiah, my King, who is my great High Priest. Deny yourself. Die to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow Him. That's the answer. Your envy and your pride are your destructive enemies. Your greatest enemy is the enemy from within. And they stand directly against God. And they stand directly against the kingship of His Son. And God says, I resist the proud, but I give grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves before the mighty, omnipotent Lord Jesus Christ, and He will lift you up. Let's pray. Our Father, as we bow our knee together before the Lord Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father, how thankful we are that You have given us a new heart that we can acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord and Jesus is our Lord. And we ask the Spirit of God to bring forth the application in our heart and suppressing and putting to death that old man with his deeds that is so full of himself, so full of self-righteousness, so self-absorbed, who gets angry when people stand in its way. Lord, put to death the old man in Adam that still resides in this flesh. And replace that old man with the new man in Christ Jesus, renewed in the image of God, in holiness, in righteousness, and knowledge. And be pleased, O Lord, to bring forth much fruit for your great name's sake. And it's in Jesus, our Lord and King, the Son of God, the Son of David, that we pray. Amen.